Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Breaking news from Real America's Voice. Hey, good morning and welcome to Just the News AM. We have breaking news from Just the News, our founder, Don Solomon, reporting that a once secret FBI informant report uh, reveals that a wider ranging operation to spy on the Trump campaign existed than we previously knew. Basically, this report shows that the FBI effort to spy on the Trump campaign was far wider than previously disclosed as agents were directed. Uh, they directed an undercover informant to make secret rec recordings, pressed for intelligence on numerous GOP figures and sought to find, quote, anyone in the Trump campaign with ties to Russia who could acquire dirt damaging to Hillary Clinton. So we've heard over and over that the intent here was to be very narrow, specific individuals like Carter Page to be surveilled because of the questions that were surrounding him. First of all, we know that he was actually helping the CIA and that information was suppressed in the FISA report. Now we have this new revelation, this new basically fishing expedition that the FBI was looking to fish for any wide ranging information that they could find on this question of Russia in order to protect Hillary Clinton. Joining me to discuss this and other issues is Congressman Ted Budd, Republican from North Carolina. Back to the show. Good morning, Congressman. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So what do you make of this latest development? Well, I have a statement, and that is the devil always accuses of his own sins. And that's what we're seeing here. Uh, everything that uh, the far left has been accusing of, it seems like uh, now there's suspicion that they were actually the ones doing it. You know, we spent tens of millions of dollars in two years on debunked Russian collusion stories, two failed impeachments. But when it comes to this and their investigation, um, illicit investigation into the Trump campaign, especially in the early stages, we need to figure out where this witch hunt started and who was actually involved. So when you're saying investigation, are you specifically going to help lead this up or what would be that? What would this look like for you? Well, it needs to be uh, a nonpartisan. I wouldn't say bipartisan, but a nonpartisan, nonpolitical investigation into something that was quite political. And I would say, look, I'm in the House Financial Services Committee, so I want to focus my efforts on rebuilding and re-strengthening the economy. But there are others here. There's oversight uh, investigation. We need to call for a hearing and, and make sure we understood what happened, bring it into the public's eye so that they can make a decision. Mm. But given the Democrats are holding both houses of Congress and the White House, do you expect there's going to be any accountability for this? Well, when you think about it, there's a lot of appointees for even in the judicial level from the Trump administration that will be there for the rest of their lives. And uh, perhaps something, a lawsuit, something can be brought before them. There are still those who uh, we can hope in the DOJ that are nonpartisan, that still wish the best for our country, and uh, that there can be something brought before them to have a very fair investigation. Mm. Well, we'll see. We'll keep following this, obviously. So, Congressman, I want to ask you about earmarks. So, earmarks, this is something that had been banned 
so pet projects for members of Congress. But Democrats now want to remove this ban. They want to stop. It's for 10 years it's been banned. These are earmarks, also known as member-directed spending. They're provisions that are discreetly tucked away in large spending vehicles that directly fund a pet project championed by a specific member of Congress. Republicans banned this in 2011. Shortly after regaining control of the House, Senate Republicans ultimately went along. But now Democrats, they want to remove this ban. What do you think is going to happen? I know that you have brought forward a proposal to make this ban permanent, but do you have a hell's chance, a snowball's chance in hell? We have to message on this right now. You are right. And when we spoke just a second ago about uh, they do have both houses. So I think it's it's very sad that when as soon as they win a majority and they feel that they have the triple crown, if you will, that they bring back the swamp's favorite tool, um, and that's earmarks. You know, since 1991, before the moratorium on earmarks, uh, there was over $375 billion spent on these uh, to the tune of 111,000 individual earmarks. Things like the Bridge to Nowhere, the Indoor Rainforest in Iowa, the Teapot Museum, uh, and even silly things like studies on goth culture. Uh, and that's more of what this is. And they're essentially congressional bribes. And I think they need to go back to where they came from. And we need to put a stop to them. So you put out a bill to stop them. What's going to happen with this? Well, we certainly, I think what we need to do is we need to win in 2022 and we need to uh, increase the temperature and increase the exposure of what they're actually doing. This is simply a quasi legalized form of bribery. You know, members went to jail for this uh, back in the 2000s when these were abused. Um, and we just think that, th look, we want to be generous with our own money as individuals, but I think trying to bribe Congress with taxpayers' money, that's never okay for any reason. Well, we just put up one of your tweets about Nancy Pelosi that you said that she is putting out an earmark for $112 million. Big tech subway, I don't even know what that means. What is a big tech subway? Is, I mean, she's, she's running the show in the House. Is she going to get this? Yeah, this is related to uh, the Bay Area Rapid Transit. It was originally, in 2018, supposed to cost $4.6 billion. Now it costs $6.9 billion, uh, and it's essentially a Silicon Valley subway, and she's adding $112 million. Now, this is, remember, this is a COVID relief bill. This is not a transportation bill, um, and now they're asking in a COVID bill that's supposed to help Americans with vaccines and reopening and, and getting schools back reopened so that parents can get back to work, and she's directing that spending through an, essentially an earmark for $112 million for a pet project in Silicon Valley. Right. So I guess that begs the question, if technically earmarks are banned right now, but she's able to put through something like this, were they ever actually effectively banned? Uh, they actually were. Uh, they were. I would call it a moratorium. And uh, in regular terms, that's a D.C. term for a pinky promise. But right now, um, what we're seeing, what we're seeing is, uh, you know, all roads lead to Schumer and Pelosi. Uh, we're seeing uh, the the Seaway International Bridge in New York that gets uh, 1.5 million dollars to connect an existing bridge. I don't know what they're going to do with it. The bridge already is there, but that's for a bridge from New York to Canada. Uh, there's all sorts of these these projects in there. And I think it's very unfortunate in a time where our economy is vulnerable and where people need to get back to work. They're spending 1.9, let's just round it to $2 trillion, when only 9% of that is actually for COVID relief. Look, I'm all for COVID relief, getting our economy open. But when it comes to pet projects like this tucked in there, it just uh, you lose faith, even more faith in the system. I mean, what's going to happen? It looks like this is going to be up for a vote this week. 
You know, it sure will. And uh, we just think uh, this is a way for us to take back the House, take back the Senate in 2022. Um, it's an unfortunate reminder and a, and a period of, uh, you, you know, wait, it's a wasted two years, but we have to keep uh, we have to keep marching on and doing what the American people sent a few of us here to do. All right. Stay with us. We've got more with the congressman coming up talking about saving small businesses. We'll be right back after this quick break. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield, joined again by Congressman Ted Budd, Republican from North Carolina, a member of the House Financial Services Committee. And he has put forward a proposal to shield small businesses. He says that the small businesses, that Congress should do everything in our power to make sure that small businesses are able to reopen as quickly as possible. My bill helps achieve that goal by preventing businesses and certain medical facilities from being hit with frivolous legal claims related to COVID-19. Standing up for our country's job creators and workers have never been more important. All right, I guess the big question, obviously, is what is frivolous? And therein lies the big debate. How are you going to define that? Well, that's what the uh, the trial lawyers are all about, is about uh, these, these big class action lawsuits suing businesses, uh, regardless of the economic devastation. And we want to protect these very vulnerable small businesses, people out there just trying to make it, trying to uh, to feed their families. And uh, if it's a if it's a small individual non chain owned store uh, and they have done what they needed to do when it comes to social distancing, requiring masks, basic sanitation, the stuff that everyday Americans do to uh, protect their customers and protect their employees, that they should be shielded uh, from these frivolous lawsuits. Uh, we think this is just a common sense idea. Uh, we're going to try to push it in onto an amendment right now to uh, the COVID relief. Look, most of this, 91% of this COVID relief has nothing to do with COVID, but something like this can really help get our economy opened and uh, give people the relief to go back to work and just one more way to open our economy. And what are Democrats saying about this? Because historically, Democrats are perceived, or some of them say that they're more anti-business. Are you able to get any more from the middle to, to join with you here? Well, for the most part, uh, they tend to be very protective, not of small businesses, as we're seeing a lot of their predatory regulations, but they're very protective of trial lawyers. I think that's one of their major uh, economic support, uh, one of their major donor, donor bases. So it's, I think it's very unfortunate uh, that they would not be uh, wanting to support this. It just seems to have fallen in partisan lines. I don't look at this as a partisan issue. I think this is about uh, everyday Americans and protecting them from uh, uh, from these law firms that specialize in destroying businesses uh, for the sake of lining their own pockets. And I think this is uh, this is about getting us going again as a country. And it's just one of uh, a few basic steps that we need to do to get fully reopened and back to the growing economy that, that we saw in early 2020 and all of 2019. And these liabilities, why didn't uh, Republicans or what was happening with Republicans when they were controlling the Senate and the White House? The, the math is a lot more difficult now for you. Yeah, it, it sure is. Such thin majorities. And remember, we didn't control the House. Uh, we encouraged this back uh, in last Congress in the 116th. And now in the 117th Congress, we want to encourage it again. But it's, uh, it's a much steeper hill to climb with the Senate now being in Democrat control and, of course, the presidency. 
Right. So uh, let's talk about, speaking of a Democrat, so your colleague Ro Khanna from California, he had this to say about minimum wage, because in the COVID bill, there's a provision that would increase and ramp up minimum wage to $15 an hour. He said on CNN, I love small businesses. I'm all for it, but I don't want small businesses that are underpaying employees. It's fair for people to be making what they're producing. I think $15 is very reasonable in this country. So he says, we don't want small businesses that can't pay $15 an hour. So is he basically saying he wants to destroy businesses? Well, that's why we have 435 reps, uh, representatives in Congress and not just one. Remember, he is from Silicon Valley, which it's hard to find a house under a million dollars. But Silicon Valley is very different than uh, North Carolina, which is very different than Alabama, and it's very different than North Dakota and West Virginia. All of these states are different. You have to keep this localized because economies are essentially localized. And I just think that's more out of touch elitism that, um, that doesn't represent the whole of America. We need to let the economy set this. Look, it, I know custodian businesses, a great business, and I grew up in that type of uh, business, Carrie, and uh, that they can't pay people less than $15 an hour because there's so much demand, or at least this was up until last year before, uh, before COVID. But even the basic entry-level businesses were having to pay that because of a naturally growing economy. And at the time, the law was you know, about seven and a quarter uh, in the mid $7 per hour range. So it, it made that completely irrelevant. I don't think um, legislation should tell people what they can and can't make. I think it should be left up to the economy. And we see with the growing economy last year, it far surpassed minimum wage. Um, and I think it will do it again if we can just reopen this economy. That's the best way to raise wages. And we've also seen study after study. I reported this in a piece today on our website on justthenews.com that academics uh, and others have found that people who are hurt the most by a minimum wage hike, the most likely to get their jobs slashed are people of color and poor Americans. So it's, um, you know, the intention to say, oh, we want to help people, it ends up firing people who are the most vulnerable. It's uh, good intentions, good intentions really gone awry. Um, Congressman, I just want to ask you while we have you here, this week is CPAC, and we know that former President Trump is going to be speaking there. What advice would you give him? What do you want to see and hear from him? Look, I really look forward to hearing. I think he's going to speak Saturday night, Sunday. Um, I'll be there uh, Friday and very excited about uh, my, my time with CPAC. What a great organization. There's been a lot of amazing people uh, on the stage there. Uh, look, I would say, what's the road ahead uh, when Republicans may feel uh, a little bit down about the election? How do you win moving forward? So I would say, uh, let's have gratitude towards the, the season that uh, he did have in the past, and let's have a good roadmap going forward. And what do you think is the roadmap forward? Well, I think we have to win elections. I'm very concerned about the Democrats' uh, desire to ensconce their power permanently through HR1. Uh, they name things like for the people, but it's absolutely for Democrats and not for Republicans. Uh, they want to they want to pay people to campaign essentially, and uh, they want to permanent they want to permanently put into law the chaos of 2020 through HR1. Uh, so I think we got to have stable, transparent elections that people can trust. And, uh, and then encourages turnout, but does it in a very legal and accountable and transparent way. I think that's the linchpin. Uh, so that's step one. And moving forward, uh, we've got to engage voters. We've got to let them know uh, that the Republican Party is the party for all people, regardless of, of color. And it is indeed the big tent party. If you want to destroy an economy, just put Democrats in control. Uh, they'll keep it on lockdown for as long as they can, because they're not about the people like they say they are. They're about power. 
And uh, we got to get beyond that. That's mm -hmm. what um, that's what we left in 1776. So we're going to talk more about HR in the next segment with another guest. But for our viewers who don't know, HR would basically make permanent a lot of the changes that we saw in the 2020 election that in many cases Democrats put forward temporarily using COVID as the cover for this. But HR 1 would make it permanent and ongoing. But Congressman, how can you stop this? Because it seems like there's a train that's going through and Democrats control that train yeah, they do. A lot of this is going to come down to the state legislatures. When you look at uh, across the 50 states, what's the makeup of governors? Republicans have most of the control. What is the control of the uh, of the state legislatures? And a lot of this where this is going to be uh, carried out. Republicans have control. So it seems like they uh, they're a top down structure. The Democrats are. And um, we need to stop it from the bottom up because that's how Republicans operate. Uh, we're really the party of most of America. If you look at the map, of 2016, the map of 2020. Most of America, um, at least geographically, are Republicans, and we have most of the uh, elected seats across the country, and we need to use that lever um, to work our way back to fairness. All right, Congressman Ted Budd, thank you so much. Thank you. And stick with us, more about HR1 and what Democrats want to do to make permanent about electoral challenges and changes that happened during COVID. Ken Cuccinelli joins me on this topic. Stay tuned. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey there, good morning. Welcome back to Justin News AM. As you just saw there, we are going to be down and live at CPAC this week. We hope you will stop by our, our booth while you're down there. What's going to be a lot of energy, a lot of people excited, a lot of people going to be down in Florida. Maybe they're going to be leaving their homes for the first time. Uh, it's going to be as, as wild as conservatives will be, I expect it will be just that. And uh, joining me to discuss what's happening with the conservative movement is Ken Cuccinelli. He's the former Virginia Attorney General and Acting Deputy Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. And he is working with a new coalition, which we'll get into. But first, I want to ask you, Ken, what do you think former President Trump's going to say? What do you want him to say? What do you want the big takeaways to be from this event? Oh, I think he's going to urge people to keep fighting and um, take our country back. And he's going to point out just the level of achievement that was uh, was accomplished prior to COVID under his leadership. I mean, one of the things we don't talk about very much is that he got us to the lowest poverty rate in recorded history at the end of 2019, literally. And that wasn't just deregulation and lower taxes. It was also enforcing uh, the law as it relates to immigration so that our poor people could see increases in their wages and opportunity. And they had tremendous increases under Trump. And I think you're going to hear him talk about that, maybe not with the specificity I just did, but he's going to talk about that successful track record. He's going to urge people to keep fighting to uh, return to positions where they can uh, benefit the American people, all of the American people, uh, by defeating the Democrats. I think that's what you're going to hear.
Mm. And what about the division and the schisms? Because you hear some voices like Liz Cheney, she's saying, I don't think Trump should be speaking there. I think we need to get him out of the party. Adam Kinzinger said the same thing. He said, we are going to be in the minority if we allow Trump to be the voice or the, 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 allow this to be the Trump party. What's your response to those people? Well, look, I think we need to continue forward. It isn't clear what President Trump is going to do, um, but we definitely need to have learned the lessons of his leadership, which are to legislate for ordinary people, not for big corporate donors, and to attract people across the spectrum. President Trump got more Hispanic and black votes than his Republican predecessors because he performed because he got their unemployment down to the lowest levels ever. Do you know, Kerry, uh, that we spent more months under 8% black unemployment just in President Trump's presidency than my entire life combined before that? All of it. It's truly, uh, the, the level of achievement has never been really uh, trumpeted. And of course, the media has an interest in, in avoiding that, right? But but these policies and this American, ordinary American focus first, that's what America first means, worked. It worked. And we're seeing the consequences already, for instance, at the border. I know you all reporting on that of America last, which is what Biden is bringing us. Everybody else comes in front of our own people, including our poor people. And that's not good for America. Well, I have a piece at Just the News today looking at this very question. And in fact, the U.S. Civil Rights Commission under Obama issued a report looking at the effects of illegal immigration, how it hurts black workers, uh, to your point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to talk about another issue that you're working on. It's an election transparency initiative uh, dedicating millions of dollars to this and that you're partnering with the Susan B. Anthony List and the American Principles Project, and you're working right. to oppose H.R. 1. Let our viewers know more about what is H.R. 1 exactly and why are you guys opposed to it? So H.R. 1 is something that was cooked up by the left a couple of years ago. And to give you a sense of just how bad it is, there, there are different parts of the bill. There's election pieces. There's free speech pieces. Even the ACLU opposes many of the speech pieces of the bill because of their oppression of free speech. So for the ACLU to oppose a radical left bill, that tells you something about how far out it is. On the election front, they are trying to do what amounts to a federal takeover of elections, which have been traditionally the responsibility of states, literally for our entire uh, country's history. And um, it isn't to make elections better. That's People need to understand that very clearly. They very intentionally are moving in a direction with H.R. 1 of making elections less transparent, easier to cheat in, and harder to provide accountability for. And they're intentionally opening the door to all of that, whereas our election transparency initiative aims to do the exact opposite. We want everybody to be able to see everything, full transparency, accountability, whenever there's an issue that arises, for whether you're winning or losing, you get accountability, and all of that to bring about truly, clearly honest election systems across the country. So while we're focused on defeating H.R. 1, um, which really is a radical left takeover of all elections, um, at the federal level, we're also 
talking to states on the positive side, on the constructive side, about how they can make their elections more transparent, how they can provide greater accountability, all while improving security and ultimately confidence in our elections, because that confidence is an absolute cornerstone to the acceptance of our system of government that is so important to continually um, improve on. Mm. Well, I guess to play the devil's advocate here on the, the Federalist uh, question here, wasn't a lot of the problem that former President Trump had with what was happening in the 2020 election was that a lot of these states, he said, were running these elections very poorly. So would that be an argument to say, hey, there should be more uniform standards because we have a patchwork here in Texas. They enforce things more you know, strictly compared to another state, like he, like he might say, like what happened with Georgia. So is there an argument to be made, hey, there should be more uniform standards because then you could have better accountability? Yeah, absolutely not. Um, the, the founders set up this dual sovereignty between states and the federal government for very good reasons. And wisdom does not and has never come from Washington. Um, we're going to find better ways to run elections by letting the states improve over time and not lock them in to Washington's current radical one-size-fits-all solution. <laughs> it isn't really intended to be a solution. It's intended to dirty up elections so the left can cheat in them. And uh, so there's no benefit in going that route, the HR1 route. But states do need to be laboratories of democracy. They need to look for ways to improve. And I'll point you to Florida. We all remember the 2000 election in Florida. Well, I'll tell you this, they really remember it in Florida. They were embarrassed. Their system looked like a joke. And what have they done? They have spent years improving it. And just look at this year's election. Florida ran smooth from start to finish with no complaints from either side about, um, you know, the game being rigged or not having confidence in the count anywhere. They took the steps to improve their system in one state. And we're going to work with states all over the country to do exactly that kind of improvement. All right, Ken Cuccinelli, we appreciate it. Good to be with you. Ken's with the Election Transparency Initiative. And stay tuned. We've got Overk Roy on what happened in Texas and how we can prevent these tragedies from happening again. Stay with us. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows.
Hey there, good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield where all our thoughts and our prayers are with all those who've been affected by these storms in Texas, elsewhere in the Midwest. And Ovik Roy joins us from Austin, Texas. He's the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Ovik, tell us what happened. You put a tweet out. Uh, you said a terrific must-read piece by one of your scholars, energy scholar Robert Bryce, on the Texas blackout grids. And he says that the reason for the blackouts is simple, grid mismanagement. Texas narrowly adverted a total grid meltdown. Tell us what exactly happened, because we've seen lots of arguments and a lot of misinformation about what happened with the grid. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say about this topic. We could spend an hour on this, and and I encourage everyone who's really interested in the topic to read the Robert Bryce article at Forbes that, that walks through all this. I'd say there's a couple of key lessons. One, an over-reliance on wind power. Wind power is incredibly unreliable. Even if you winterize the windmills, which is something a lot of people have been talking about, wind power basically stops working when it's not windy. Uh, and, and that's a big problem. And then, you you know, so you, you have the situation where a lot of the power now in Texas is wind dependent, an increasing amount. It's still a minority, but it's an increasing amount. And that means the overall grid is less reliable. Uh, another big piece is that uh, the way the Texas electricity market works, there isn't a built-in insurance policy where uh, 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 electricity providers are not incentivized to create this reserve capacity. So basically what happens is it's a pure supply and demand. When people need electricity, there's more of it. When people don't need electricity, there's less of it. But in these extreme situations, you don't have that backup reserve capacity installed through traditional fossil fuels, nuclear power, et cetera, uh, to provide that backup energy. And then the third thing I'd say that Robert really talks about in this piece is how it could have been a lot worse. It turns out that we were very, very close to having a blackout that could have lasted for months across the state because of mismanagement of the grid. And that's an incredibly important thing. What's happened in Texas could happen in a lot of other places. We've made the electricity grid in America a lot more fragile by having it depend much more on renewable energy, which is less reliable and less on more reliable sources of energy, principally nuclear power, but also traditional fossil fuels, coal and natural gas in particular. Mm -hmm. Ovik, I hear what you're saying, but I hear from a lot of Democrats that the, that what happened was that Texas was trying to go it alone, that it should have relied more on the federal government as it relates to grid management, that it, it shunned a lot of federal principles and, and federal assistance or federal regulation and, and just management of the grid. What say you to that? Yeah, so the, the criticism comes from the fact that Texas actually operates its own electricity grid. It's not connected to some of the other interstate electricity grids that cover the rest of the country. And, and the fact is it's not true. The, the, the claim from the left is not true, because if you look at the states that are near Texas that are on that national or interstate grid, like Oklahoma, like New Mexico, uh, they had the same problems that Texas did, because they also have uh, overinvested in wind in a way that's made their uh, grids re less reliable. And we all know about all the blackouts that California has had. So this was a very, very unusual situation. You had you know, literally, I live in Austin, as you said, we had sub-freezing temperatures straight for five days, meaning it, the temperature didn't actually go above 32 degrees for five days. And that has not happened in, as far as I know, recorded history uh, in Austin. It has at least been a very long time. So clearly, we're going to have to learn some lessons from that. We're going to have to winterize a lot of this uh, electricity grid. That's going to cost money. And I think the state government has that insurance capacity to, that it needs to work on. But once you do that, I think Texas will be fine. The good news is we got lucky. This could have been a lot worse. 
Uh, we escaped with relatively limited damage, considering how bad it could have been. And now we've just got to turn around and make sure we build nuclear power, we build more natural gas capacity, and we build that reserve electricity grid so that people don't go through this ever again. Well, we're just glad that it's uh, back to normal. We hope it stays uh, healthy for everyone. I want to ask you politically, so there was all these headlines about Senator Ted Cruz and his trip to Cancun. Another headline with Attorney General in Texas, Ken Paxton, making a trip to Utah. This was apparently, according to him, a previously planned trip to meet with the Attorney General of Utah to discuss several matters, including strategizing on a Google lawsuit. What do you think the political fallout will be, if any? Give us a sense on the ground there. And Texas, because it's one thing to have the national media saying one thing about this is toast for their political careers. What's your sense, though, there in Texas? Well, you know, I think it's too early to tell. I think so many people have just been worried about making sure they have running wa water and power and heat. I don't think people have been, like, paying attention to that stuff a lot. Obviously, Democrats have made, you know, a, a fair amount of hay about it. And, and Ted Cruz has said he made a mistake, and he did, politically and otherwise. I mean, I think when, when a crisis like this happens, even if you're a senator and you're not directly from a policy standpoint responsible for what's going on in the state. I, I think it's important to marshal the resources and the relationships you have to try to help people wherever you can. I know my congressman, Chip Roy, he was doing that. So uh, I, I think that uh, Ted Cruz made a mistake and he would agree. Mm -hmm. And just while I have you real quick before we go to our break, you've been tweeting a lot about Bitcoin, and we've been talking that about Bitcoin a lot on this program. You said the value of the U.S. dollar is saddled with over $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities and trillions in future deficits for as far as the eye can see is far more speculative than Bitcoin. This is a serious problem, especially for those who depend on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. What's interesting is that we saw a huge spike when we saw, you know, Tesla invested 1.5, you know, billion into Bitcoin, but now we've seen it drop. So, I mean, is there an argument to be made that, you know, it's very volatile and it's and it's risky? Well, Bitcoin is volatile in the near term, but volatility is not the same thing as speculation, right? Lots of tech stocks, biotech stocks, you know, the Nasdaq can be volatile. But I think many of us agree that over the long term, we like to invest in high-tech companies because over time, they, they may turn into the Googles and the Facebooks, right? And then they be, when they become really, really large, they're a lot less volatile. Right now, Bitcoin has close to a trillion dollars in market value. That's, that's, no, that's no laughing matter. That's more than right. Berkshire Hathaway. That's more than right. Facebook. That's actually more than Tesla. All right. Evic, we got to run, but thanks so much. We'll be right back. Hey, good morning. Welcome back to Just the News AM. Well, here on Real America's Voice, we love to get our viewer feedback. We only put the smartest comments up. So tweet me at Carrie Sheffield. My comment question yesterday was, do you think that America is sliding toward authoritarianism? Feminist Naomi Wolf says yes. She joined the program yesterday. Buck Zeller said in response, he says, sliding? We are in a free fall. With a few more executive orders, freedom of religion, the Second Amendment, and in some regards, freedom of speech will be revoked, making America a one-party system. Heil Caesar. Dr. Spare Audi says, hey, can you loan me one of those? In response uh, to Dr. Naomi Wolf, Dr. Naomi Wolf said that she regrets her vote for Biden because she didn't realize how open that he was to lockdowns. And Dr. Spare Audi says she voted for Biden but was evidently dazzled by his no-show campaign into believing in his utopian dream. Paul Joseph Callahan says 
She is great. Also an example of how the current feminists eat their own when someone like her steps up to speak truth on other matters. Well, it was great to have Naomi on the program yesterday, and I hope she'll become a friend of the network. Well, let's move on to what's happening in overseas with Iran. Joining me to discuss this is Dakota Wood. He's a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Hey there, Dakota. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you. So there's just a lot of headlines coming out with this new administration, one that we're seeing with Iran and the changes that are making uh, their relationship with South Korea. Uh, and Iran says that South Korea is releasing $1 billion frozen by U.S. sanctions. An Iranian government spokesman said on Tuesday that South Korea will be releasing the $1 billion in frozen assets as a, quote, initial step in resolving a dispute between the two countries. So how is this happening? Are these U.S. sanctions, have they already been lifted? Well, not technically. The Biden administration said that they would not lift sanctions until Iran returned to the table. Iran is saying the U.S. has to lift sanctions imposed by the Trump administration before they will return to the table. So they're at a bit of an impasse. But because of some of the ambiguity, you know, who makes the first move, Iran is doing everything it can to, to exploit that uh, those seams. So this overture to South Korea, uh, maybe saying something that isn't quite the case yet, uh, certainly putting pressure on the United Kingdom, France and Germany uh, to start freeing up funds as well. So we'll have to see what the Biden administration uh, and uh, Secretary of State Blinken uh, does here in the next uh, couple of days. All right, so but, uh, as far as having leverage, do you think that the Biden administration is giving away things without getting concessions? I mean, that, that's an argument. Uh, we have a headline from NBC yeah. News. They ran an op-ed uh, from people who are from the Foundation for De Defense of Democracies, uh, which, I, honestly, I was surprised to see this headline. Uh, but the, the op-ed said that Biden was squandering the leverage that Trump stockpiled on Iran in pursuit of a defective nuclear deal. And he argues, Mark Jibowitz, from the Foundation for Defensive Democracies that Biden is basically giving things away without getting anything back. Do you agree? Well, that's that's the charge. And I am uh, in agreement with the concern. You know, right now, the Biden administration has not taken those steps, but there is a danger of doing so. Clearly, during the campaign season, right, leading up to the election, the Biden team made it very clear that they thought that the Trump administration was off base, you know, that this full court press maximum pressure, sanctions uh, were all harmful. And the pulling out of the uh, Iranian nuclear deal, the JCPOA, was a mistake to begin with. So they were sending signals that America was coming back into that agreement. Now that they're in office and they see everything that Iran is doing, you know, they've already breached the 3.67% uh, limit of enrichment uh, if you're enriched uranium uh, that the deal had uh, mandated was going to be sealing. They're at four and a half percent. Uh, and the IAEA, the International uh, Atomic Energy Agency, has said that Iran is now uh, enriching at 20 percent. And the Iranians have made noises that they're going to go to 60 percent. The Iranians already have 15 times the amount allowed by the deal stockpiled in the country. And they are now refusing to hand over videotape uh, that would capture what's going on inside of a couple of these facilities to the IAEA as well. So clearly, Iran is in material breach. 
They have always been in material breach of the agreement, and that's why the Trump administration had tried to up the ante, you know, imposing sanctions, pulling out of the deal because the Iranians weren't adhering to it. So the Biden team made clear that they wanted to go back to the deal. The Iranians are taking advantage of that, and we will have to see whether the Biden administration uh, all of a sudden awakens to the reality of Iran and not the fanciful notions uh, that they were spouting during the uh, the campaign season, even six months ago. All right, but so there's something that happened with Taiwan and China. So the United States uh, continued its military exercises in the strait there near Taiwan. I was surprised to see this because I said, oh, the Biden administration is being stronger than I expected. Do you think that the Biden administration is doing anything or do you think they'll do anything that might surprise you and be stronger than Iran, against Iran than you're expecting? Well, I think this is an example of getting slapped in the face by reality. So it's easy to say things during a campaign. It's much different when you're in office and have to deal with the reality of China's naval build plan, uh, the uh, development of a very large amphibious fleet uh, that they would only use against uh, Taiwan, uh, the continued penetration of Taiwan airspace uh, with Chinese aircraft. It just goes on and on. So, I mean, you just can't ignore that and have any credibility at all. So again, it's it's the advisors and it's uh, uh, President Biden himself having to deal with the reality of what's going on in the China-Taiwan uh, dispute, the frictions there. And, and I hope that this reality makes them more realist than idealist uh, in their practice of foreign policy. Well, uh, we always like it when people grow up and uh, become realists. So. Um, but uh, thanks so much, Dakota Wood, for joining us, Senior Research Fellow there at Heritage Foundation. Real pleasure. Right. Thanks. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with some good news to warm your heart here on this cold winter day. We'll be right back. Hey there, good morning. Welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're with us. Well, a lot of folks have been freezing cold in Texas and throughout the Midwest, other parts of the country too, because of this unprecedented cold weather. Well, in Texas, this will warm your heart. A furniture store owner, again, is offering his store as a shelter. Over the course of a 72-hour period, Mattress Mac and his crew provided 3,000-plus meals and overnight accommodations to more than 700 Houston residents. They offered food, shelter, a place to warm up. This isn't the first time that he's done this. He also became a Good Samaritan in 2005. He welcomed refugees from Hurricane Katrina, and in 2017, he gave relief to victims of Hurricane Hurricane Harvey. And what's so interesting about what he does, his commercials apparently are just over the top, really bombastic and really just fun and getting attention. But he's not one of these types of people that's all hat and no cattle. He's someone who is doing something to actually help his fellow man. And it's just an incredible thing to know that this is something that's happening in Texas. Our hat is off to you and we appreciate everything that you're doing. Uh, if you want to support him and his efforts, um, make sure you go to Gallery Furniture with Mattress Mac down there in Florida, in uh, Texas, um, in Houston, and the visual to see folks there. Uh, he made sure that they're masked, they're socially distanced, that they're taking the precautions that they need to stop the spread of the pandemic, but that doesn't stop him from helping people who have been just out in the cold here. We salute you. All right, that does it for us. Stay tuned for War Room coming up next.